This is Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Uh, welcome, Andy Harmon, Executive Development Coach. Uh, delighted to have you. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so we first got connected through a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Tim Lake, who I know is a, a regular listener. And he has been singing your praises for years. When he was at PwC, he went on one of your, your training programs and uh, learned a lot and has developed a lot um, as an individual, as a coach, as a, as a consultant himself through going through an experience that, that you designed and facilitated. So um, I've always been interested in you before, even before the podcast. So now this is a great opportunity to take a, a deeper dive into the way that you work and so, and your take on, well, on, well, on the actor's mind, right? That, that's the, like, your website and that's the sort of thinking behind it. And then this experience you design going into the danger zone. So, so she, I, I don't know whether it's best to start with, with the philosophy and then the experience or. or well, I, I think I, I've been giving this a little bit of thought when I knew you, you wanted to talk to me. So uh, really in, in the work that we did in business, I mean, my background is in the theory. So that means I trained actors and directed actors. So I have a bit of leadership experience from the sense of leading a team of people, you know, with, and it includes not only the actors, but the backstage and all the rest of that. Uh, but uh, basically when we were asked to, uh, and I say we, because I'm talking about my wife and myself, we worked together at PwC, PW as it was then. And um, uh, the, the work, I think of my, my consulting life or my kind of business life, dealing with in, in two areas that are probably worth explaining because that will kind of frame what, what I have to say. One is basically theater. So when you think of theater, I mean, it's useful to look up the definition. So the theater, actually, we associate with the stage and actors and all that. But actually, even in common usage, the theater of war, the operating theater. So the, the root is, it means the place of seeing and action. That's what the word theater means. So the first part of our work and how we got into business was we were coaching people uh, in their the, I don't want to say the theater of business, but in, in what it is to be alive in front of a group of people and what that does to a room full of people watching, especially. And um, uh, those of us who have attended the odd business meeting or so, or even the big events know that uh, with the exception of charismatic speakers or very charismatic, say, product launches. Um, actually, the run-of-the-mill meetings in business are, I don't want to use the word boring, but I, I will. They're boring. And therefore, because boring means you're cut off, the message is rarely actually communicated. There's a kind of, uh, I mean, I can remember... <laughs> I won't mention the client, but I can remember attending. We were sometimes called in to say, okay, why don't you watch so-and-so in action? And then you can give advice or coaching or whatever. And this poor chap had been settled with a slide that was filled with so much data that they had ignored the fact that it actually looked like a pretzel. 
at, at the, at, you know, a kind of a weird infinity sign uh, filled with gray specks. So you had a room full of people straining because actually everyone knew that the outcome of this meeting was going to be some managers were going to be kept and some were going to be let go. And the idea of an incredible to read pretzel projected on the screen while someone explains in detail with their back to the audience what all these dots actually mean. And the room is caught between, should I be worried about whether I'm going to have a job or, 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 or should I be okay? Um, and what we found when, uh, in, in the early days, especially when we were teaching, is that the speakers and the people who planned these events were, were often very taken by a certain amount of showbiz pizzazz. So you'll get some kind of showbiz thing you can stick in there or, or away days. I don't know how many away days I saw with people, you know, doing paintball and all the rest of it, coming back to learn that their job was under threat. I mean, uh, so one of the things that we were, uh, that we focused on doing was making, um, because my definition of theater has to do with truth and honesty. It doesn't have to do with bluster and fooling people. So the point is, if you're standing up in front of a room and you're charged with communicating something to them, good or, to people, good or bad, it's useful to know how to be there and not physically, uh, psychologically flee. Uh, whether it's around a table or in a big room full of people. And the message that you send by the way you hold yourself or use your, not just the language, but the tone and all the nonverbal side becomes uh, a tool you can use. And most of the people that we worked with, whether they were consultants, it was mainly consultants, but often um, senior executives who were charged with doing what this poor guy had to do, which was lecture about a gray donut, um, <laughs> to be um, more, to, to be able to reach an audience more fully and therefore have some effect. If I get up in front of a room and just shoot my mouth off, which by the way, I'll do at the drop of the hat. But if I do that, at least I know that the tools I've learned as an actor and as a director coaching others, will stand me in good stead when it comes to making contact with the people that I'm speaking to and that the, my words have impact. So it's not just a question of the message. There's also an element of, of the credibility of the messenger. Some of that is carried by your I don't know what you'd call it, your, your status. But um, uh, th there is something else which is not dependent on the status that you have in the organization, the title or, or decision territory or budget that you command, which, which believe me will help or hinder maybe, but with your presence in the room. So it was all about teaching people to be present when they were, a when they were in meetings anyway, but especially when they were charged with 
uh, communicating a message. And also because we know that as far as change is concerned, just spewing out messages does very little. There has to be some way of some sense of back and forth. And uh, although I am a complete un-Trump fan, but you, you see where his power, one of his, the powerful things he does in those TV uh, evangelical sessions that he has is he gets back and forth going with the audience. He, he, he like feels confident to handle himself, even though, and I won't go into to my politics because it's, I'll be here all day, but I can admire the fact that he, he opens, he, he, he fills the room with a sense of dialogue, even when, and it's just word salad. You know that he's coming up, right? With. And he's testing these nicknames, isn't he? So he's derogatory. Right. It's, all, it's all about. It's all and about he's back and forth with the with the audience on that, right? But 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 uh, of course, Trump was not uh, on the scene when we were back in the '90s and the early 2000s when we were coaching um, uh, consultants in particular. But um, one of the reasons that Tim, like who you mentioned earlier, is that Tim really got that. The way you um, hold your hold the situation and hold yourself within it makes a huge difference on your impact. And especially when people have come through university, um, they have not been trained or do not consciously tend to acknowledge the the power of I don't want to uh, of what you can loosely call charisma or your ability to be live in the room, alert to what's happening, so that while you're talking, you can concentrate on your, the, say someone, and be aware that someone over there in the corner of the room is sitting back and ready to say, okay, I had actually one guy come up to me once and say, you know, I, I kind of like you, I kind of like what you're doing. He said, but we've had the gray look, the magenta look, the white look. I've seen people like you come and go. Why the hell should I listen? Okay. And of course I couldn't answer, but I could say, well, all I can do is raise a question about whether I can help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. Because that's my level of expertise. That's my expertise. And I went through some very interesting experiences in the training room in which basically my job before I gave lecture or, or taught a skill was to, it was to give people the, the, the feeling that at least I knew what I was talking about. And that my purpose in being there, I realize that sometimes you get people who sign up for a course and sometimes you get people who are volunteered for a course. And for me, uh, the crucial factor was, okay, we're all in the room together. Now what? And you have to stay here for another eight hours or two days or whatever it's going to be. because so, so what do you want to do with it? Because all I was there to help, all, I mean, I was very lucky because all I was there to help them be more effective at communicating to others and getting things done, which of course, 
is, and to tell you the reason that we spent nine years at Pricewaterhouse, even had a decent run at McKinsey two or three years, um, uh, was because we, um, we were able to win people over by being honest about what we were there for. That, all right, we're there. People want you to, um, I remember in particular when nationalized, when the, when the big uh, electric grids were nationalized and there were two or three companies, National Power was one, we were hired by them. And uh, we went in a unit on empowerment. That was the theme. And what we ended up doing was throwing out that agenda because that wasn't the problem they were experiencing. People knew that, that if you had someone who was learning what they were doing, uh, and, and, and these guys, guys who'd been with that company in the electric grid or whatever they were, uh, they could tell when someone was safe to install whatever it is the heck they were installing, not. So they knew that, that, but the company was like so many companies do. They, they get a catchphrase. They think the stockholders will be impressed or the boards, whatever is going to happen. And they, they are unaware that the people on the ground probably know more about what they think they should learn than they do. Okay. Uh, and that the way to get people to consider something is to acknowledge acknowledge that you know if you're 45 years old and you've been with the company for 20 since you were 18 you actually have a pretty good way uh, feel about how that company works now uh, uh, and no matter what the training agenda is so in this particular case what we discovered was these people were really worried about how if you were not aware of the person's strengths, who you were empowering, people might get hurt. This was heavy manufacturing, by the way. You know, it's like you wound up. And when we, because uh, the first thing you say, is that really what you're concerned about? Or, or if it's a bunch of guys sitting in a room who don't have a problem with with straightforward language, it's, you'd say, all right, is this, is this, are you bullshitting me or are you telling me the truth? And what we discovered was that if people could, could, people would be open to learning something new if you gave them the chance to be there with you. And that requires you to be there. Right. And this, this, this is sort of leaping back to where you started is not, you, you said to not psychologically flee and to to be to be present right That's yes exactly so so basically what we were teaching the consultants and executives we worked with was how to be present under pressure now that's what actors do um in real terms being a brain surgeon or or an airline pilot is far more dangerous than acting but if I put you on a stage in front of 250 to 2,000 people, you're going to get butterflies as if your life depended on it. And um, why? Because your physiology is telling you you're under threat. 
Right, and I right. read something there in our in our evolution. Usually, if we were addressing a group like that, it's because we've been kicked out of the tribe, and we were sort of pleading to be accepted back into the tribe. I didn't think of that, but that's even better. In our evolutionary history, that was literally a, a physical threat to our life. Right, that, that I mean, situations for, like that. for me, the whole thing is if there's a lot of people looking at you, your reptile brain is going to go, why is this happening? I don't care how rational the mammal part and the human part is doing, that reptile brain is going to say, there's, there, there could be a problem here. And I used to use the metaphor of saying, okay, you're, all right, we're all in the cave. It's back in the, you know, back, way back in the day. And you just had a really good meal. So you decide, I'm going to have a little walk. So you walk outside the cave and there's a fire behind you. So there's a bit of light spilling onto the savannah and you see, you know, 30 or 40 pairs of eyes looking at you, just waiting for you to get just vulnerable enough for them to eat you. <laughs> so I think that when you step, this is the way I've worked, is, is that it's completely natural to be nervous when you step in front of a group. The people who do not appear to be nervous, they're not, in, in my view, they're not hiding their nerves, they're being okay with their nerves. So that was the basic underlying training, how to be okay with your nerves, which are perfectly natural. And is, that, will, is that voicing voicing that to the, to the audience and saying, hey, I'm nervous? I mean, what's, what, what, how do you- Oh yeah, I mean, one of the things you can say is, gosh, I'm, I'm, I've done this many, ooh, you know, I'm really nervous. I haven't spoken to a group of 300 people. In a long time, or, or um, uh, sometimes I'll say, okay, if I look a little nervous, don't worry, I am. You're, you're, there's nothing wrong with you know. You do not change the set. You know, do not tune your set. You're, it's because I'm nervous. And as soon as I mentioned it, of course, everybody knows. That with very rare exceptions, people in front of rooms are nervous. You go back 2,500 years and one of the Buddha's, you know, the Buddhist cataloged many fears, okay? They had, and, and one of their crucial fears is fear of speaking before an assembly. Now that was 5,000 years ago. So believe me, things haven't changed. You stand up in front of a room full of people and you will, you, you, you unless there's something, um, unless you're very special or there's something wrong with your, perceptive apparatus, you're going to get nervous. Now, the trick is, how do I harness the energy? Every actor knows this. How do I harness the energy in my nerves to reach out to people rather than withdraw? Now, my instinct is always to withdraw because until I learned to turn that around. And the, the first thing we taught people was there was, okay, uh, I'm this is all under the big heading of theater that I was talking about, is how to be, all right, here's three simple practices. Stop. I don't know how many, you've probably attended many meetings, but mm -hmm. one of the that's very common is people talk incredibly fast. And really the smarter they are, and maybe the more they have to contribute, the faster they'll talk until finally you can't really squeeze a word in there, uh, a thought in there. So one of the first things to do is stop. Now that's quite hard. You get up in front of a room and you stop. And then you breathe. 
and be, to be seen breathing, sometimes it's very odd, but if you ask people to breathe, they'll feel ashamed of being seen to breathe in public. I mean, this is weird. It is weird because without breathing, we couldn't do anything. All right. And then look at your audience. I don't want to say, uh, and I, I see your audience, I think is better. It's not just make eye contact, but actually see people. Now that set of actions, which was taught to me by a wonderful acting teacher named Dan Fossey, uh, was also a producer. He was an associate producer, assistant, uh, not assistant, but executive producer on, on, on the, uh, not Cheers, but the one that, uh, I can't remember the another show, but anyway, he, he's, he's a pretty experienced theater guy and, and, and entertainment guy. And what Dan taught was those things. Stop, breathe, and look. And even if you do it, cast your mind back to the teacher in school or the, the what are the, the, I forgot, the director of the school or uh, I've forgotten the name, headmaster of the school, standing up in front of the assembly and everybody's chit-chatting and they just wait. And then they look at Jameson and you know, that would be a long pause. Uh, what they're doing is signaling to the room. It's a high status signal. Silence is a high status signal. But what they're, they're signaling to the room that I'm in command and you can trust me. So not only will stopping help you uh, bridle your nerves, but it will signal to the room that you are in charge, even when you don't feel in charge. And most of the time, I, I really don't feel in charge. I just kind of work my way there. But if you have to stop and breathe and then look, you're signaling, you're, you're first of all, you're gathering the uh, energy, which is diff diffused by all the nerves that are happening in you. And second of all, you're sending a signal to the room that um, there's important information coming up. People undermine their authority by speaking too fast or not making eye contact, fidgeting, uh, uh, um, looking slightly like this. Uh, uh, they signal, you know, I'm not really very important. So what I have to say isn't very important. Now, they might be awed by the fact that they have something very important to say, but they're cowed by the, this bunch of, you know, this gaze behavior of 100 people or 20 people, or 15 people, or five people. The first people I worked with was, they're out of business now, but Rumbelows. Do you, you don't happen to remember the white goods? Yeah, right? oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They were a white goods place, right? That was the first corporate job I ever got. And um, they were, th there were people who would be great salesmen, then they got promoted to manager, and suddenly they had to talk to five people at once, and they were paralyzed. These were people who were incredibly good one-to-one, -one, but they couldn't, um, they couldn't, they could somehow couldn't get beyond, they didn't know what to do with their natural defense against being looked at. This is kind of what we used to stress and what, what I would stress if I was talking for anybody who is, happens to be interested in this, it's perfectly natural to defend yourself in front of a room full of people. Because from the point of view of the, your, your, your lower brain, you're under threat. People are looking at you. 
And the lower part of your brain actually can't pretty much distinguish between, uh, well, probably between a primate but <laughs> and, and another mammal, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so, and the reaction is pretty much going to be the same. Your breathing gets shallow. You, you, your, your eyes don't dilate, they do the opposite. They contract, your pupils contract, your hands may sweat. And this happens to everybody. The key is that you, you can change the way you hold this physiological phenomenon. And that's what we would do. And over the course of the into the danger zone, excuse me, and also another course we call the danger zone of selling is the, the fundamental underlying uh, teaching was how to be okay under pressure how to be okay when your nerves and your instinctive self tells you until you train that you're under threat. Your instinctive self is trained to be okay, to operate and not to go to, you don't go to sleep. Going to sleep is actually a function of, of being very nervous, um, but, or can be. But you, you're, you're alive, you're awake, you're alert to what's happening. You're okay, somebody's disgruntled in the back. You can say things like, I'm, I'm a little worried about you in the back there because you, you, I don't think you agree with me. What's on your mind? And immediately, they're probably, they're not gonna wanna say anything. And, and you say, look, I, I really want you to know that my job is to give you the tools to make you do your, to, to allow you to do your job better. Okay. So I'm going to encourage you the entire time, this entire time to share what's on your mind, because if you don't, there's not, not, there's very little likelihood. Sorry. I've just seen myself and it's a bit unkempt. Uh, very little, little likelihood <laughs> that you're going to learn anything and be, be, that I'm going to be able to help you. But if you let me, and I worked again in the early days, I worked with Mecca Leisure hired me to back. This was okay. I, I I'm an American. So, and I, even though I lived in Britain for 30 years, okay. Or damn close to it. Um, I, there were some things I didn't understand. And one of the things I didn't understand was the, 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 the particular British obsession with bingo and and also the history of bingo calling in britain now th there is a history once upon a time bingo callers were very flamboyant they were like, almost like stand-up comics and then the then the corporate wheels started to turn and of course you you didn't want someone who was too popular because you couldn't get rid of them they had a following so they went the opposite way and had bingo callers that were, you know, terrified little mice reading off, because this was the days, really before the internet hit. We're talking the, the mid mid to late nineties, are we? No, even earlier, early nineties. And um, <laughs> so, my bingo callers. There was one guy who was an absolute pain. I mean, he was completely. He was saying. Every time I'd make a statement, he'd say, you're full of shit, he'd basically say. And, and um, 
So winning this guy, I said, okay, all right, you tell, you get out here and you do to improve. I said, I'm not doing that. I said, well, what if I can teach you how to stand up here and tell me, well, would that, would that be it? The point was, I really enjoyed working. And of course, uh, Americans tend to be more tr true believers. British people are, are by nature quite skeptical, at least the ones that I ran into. So I'd always get somebody who couldn't, and, and, and actually, this is true also. Of the, I'm thinking of a couple of, of the, uh, even, even the Austrians, not the Germans, the Austrians and, and, uh, and the Dutch were also a bit, believe it or not. Um, but could engage with someone who's skeptical and let them tell me that I'm full of shit or that I don't know what I'm talking about or that I don't understand their situation, which is probably true. Uh, and I let people tell me about it and I create an atmosphere where people don't feel I'm going to go tell the boss. So is this they, something about having, encouraging them to be authentic? Is that, so, so it's about you, you trying to connect to that and encouraging them to connect. Well, the point is if I, okay, there, there is a, there is a something that happens in a room that, that that's what leadership is. Now, this is a particular kind of leadership. If I provide the example, that I will say what's on my mind, it will encourage you to say what's on your mind. And slowly you get a few people, and this will pay off when I start talking about the, the other side of what I did later on. But in, in the days when we were working on the theater side, that is to say on that live moment by moment interaction you have with a group of people, that's what we did. We taught people to be present under pressure, not to run. And then, in fact, if you went where the energy is, which is another one of Dan's saying, but very, very useful, go where the energy is. If you go where the energy is, if you see somebody who's doing this, you will, and you can evoke that energy. Every, first of all, the whole room, most people ignore it. So the room is going to go, whoa, that, that's a good, that's, so that's wake up. So time to wake up. Important information coming up. And that signal so you, 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 you go where the energy is, and that's um, about important information coming up, is an important signal to send at the beginning of a talk or at any time during your workshop experience where you're working with people in a room um, to keep people there. Because if it gets too sleepy, everyone will drift. And you'll be talking into the void. So you're so right. You've got to keep coming back to, to these. So, well, you, you do it in the you, you do it by working with what's in the room, right. not running away from it. So, uh, uh, and I was um, I had in my example, but it'll, it'll come back to me. Um, but that business of being alive away. I used to have a big chart that I put up. And there were things like, okay, this is what actor's mind is. This is what we're going to teach you. Alive, awake, alert, available. Um, there was a couple more A's. There were, I had, you know, that kind. Uh, so, 
So that was the beginning of what we taught is we would, so we started, the, the danger zone broke down into three or four major units. And the first was how to be there under pressure. Don't worry about being original. Uh, if you have to master the content, master the content, but that will not help you. Um, uh, I've seen, I, I saw a, a meeting at a client site where they brought, they, they brought, they actually brought this firm company, uh, brought 50 American managers to the UK to spend a day with the world expert on some, I don't know, Sigma six or something, right? Some, something. And this guy was, was world expert. Okay. And he had all his slots. He had his, and of course the technology broke down. So here, I don't know how much the company invested had to be, it had to be 50, it must've been 50, you know, 50 managers got to be a thousand pounds, at least more to bring them to the, to this expert. So they could ask him questions. And I watched, he, well, actually, he was pretty good. The machines broke down. He said, okay, I don't need this. But he made a significant mistake that was only corrected when the group got a bit bullshit, which was he started talking to them from his position of expertise. And of course, they didn't give a shit about the theory. They had problem A and problem B and problem C that they wanted the world expert to give his opinion about. But until he finally said, <laughs> he was rather thinking, oh, this whole thing's going to hell. I'm gonna actually start listening to these people. The room started to light up and he started giving the very value that he thought his slides were gonna give. Because here he is, the world expert on this topic. I tell you, I've had a couple of uh, uh, health scares in my life and when I've had a chance to talk or get the advice of the one of the world five guys in the world who know this subject, I felt a hell of a lot better because they lived concerned or they looked at my the pictures of my pathetic brain or whatever it was that they were doing. And you then you get expertise aimed at you at helping you solve your problem. But uh, it, it, now, I'm not talking about training people academically. I'm talking about what happens when you have a group of managers who are coping with X. Right, and this is fascinating because when I think back to my presentation training, there'd be a lot of focus on you know the style of your slides and not making them too wordy, and there would be some stuff about breathing. But but this idea of you know being being vulnerable, sh showing your authenticity, going with the energy in the room. These, these are really interesting ideas to me. And I just think back to a workshop I led last week and I think about my preparation and I was thinking about the timings and the logistics yeah. of the room and setting it up in terms of its objectives of the session and what they... And, and like, at no point did I ask myself, okay, how am I going to prepare to be present for them? How am I going to prepare to find the energy? And like, this is fascinating. To me. I'm sure there are other people listening, but these are not these are kind of novel questions to be asked. I mean, well, it's so interesting because this is this was the reason. And by the way, I'm still available. I'm still on the market. Um, uh, this is the reason, though, that we got work coming from 
the theater. Now, when I started taking theater things into business, this was now it's not so such a foreign idea. Um, corporate training divisions or pieces, even the RSC, even uh, the Globe. But this was the days when I I I got I called up a guy. My wife did a wonderful thing. It was like 1987. And it was coming to up to Christmas time. And I knew I had to do something to earn a bit more money because in the theater, unless you're very successful, and, and I think I was pretty good, but I didn't have a successful theater career. I wasn't directing in the West End and so forth. And she said, and I got a job going to Sweden for uh, two two bits of three weeks each, working with a, a theater group there. And that was great. I was very excited about that. She said, well, don't worry. You come back at Christmas. By the time you get back, um, I'll have you some appointments. And she, this is before we worked together. Okay. And by God, <laughs> by the time I got back, she did have me one appointment with somebody. And the interesting thing is, is all of these things you're talking about, that was 20, 20, that's a long time, eight, what, what we're talking, 87, 97, to the, okay, nearly 30 years ago, okay? And people still don't get it. We were actually saying, okay, there's nobody, and, and part of it was that many actors don't know what it is that they do that makes them good about being up there. And a lot of people hate auditions, even great actors, and they do, if they get to the point where they don't have to audition, they're very relieved, where they can just interview maybe, or okay, because auditions are, but it are are put you on edge. They make you nervous. They blah blah blah. Okay, but that's the whole point. When when you're making a presentation in business, sitting around a table, standing up around a room. Uh, or in front of a large group of people, your reaction is going to be the same. The stakes are going to go up in your mind, whether they're coming from this part of your brain or you're actually making a presentation to the CEO or the CEO is making a presentation to the board or, the, or somebody from the board is making a presentation to the chair. I don't care how, or the chairman is making a presentation to the stockholders. Everybody's got a, you know, Bob Dylan, that wonderful song, you're gonna have to serve somebody. You know, uh, maybe the devil and maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And everybody, when the stakes go up, which we'll come to later, because that's a concept from drama that's very useful to complement this, but it also may lead us in a somewhat different direction. But the acting skills are skills that involve you in the room with others. Now, it, 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 with others who may or may not agree with you. I'm not... Personal confrontation, I don't like it. But when I'm a, a pro, if I'm hired as a professional to go into a room, I can go into a room of very hostile and very skeptical Brits, okay, which were the much more skeptical than, than Americans, or certainly more easy to easy about being skeptical. And um, and I could handle it because uh, uh, because I knew how, I, I, I had my audition technique, which is one of the things I've been talking to you about. Now, there are other things that we would then teach. So 
the first day, for example, would be just people would get up and say, I'm here because I want to do X. I want to be, and these, after we established ourselves at PwC, these range from things like, I want to be able to, uh, to not shut down my emotions when I'm with people, or I want to be able to be cooler under pressure. I want more gravitas when I speak. I want to be able to challenge one person, the gray hairs in, in the audience. If Young consultants often very, um, at least in back in the day when I was doing that. So um, first day was really, what do you want to accomplish? And then we'd apply those rules, stop, breathe, look. And then we would introduce the rule that we're going to apply the next day, which was get your attention off yourself. One of the things that your nerves will do when your physiology puts up your defenses is you start going into yourself and asking, what am I doing wrong? Am I good? Am I okay? Why is that person doing? Instead of thinking, instead of looking out saying, oh, that guy has his arms are crossed. Hmm. And then like a bit like a bloodhound, you go, you go towards that energy in a gentle way because you want eventually that person to open up. Uh, um, and, or you just take note and notice that you've got a couple of skeptics that you have to win over or somebody who's really pissed off that they have to be there. I mean, why am I on a bloody training course when I, I was taken off my, this big job that I, important job I had to do and put here, you know, you know, and, and, and when, when some very high powered consultants say, what am I doing here? I'm having important client work. We're losing 2,500, 20, uh, no, 25,000 pounds today because I'm not on the job. And I've had people say that, one or two. You know, I'm a partner at this firm, for Christ's sake. Why do I have to do this? Really, not, not thinking, well, how, how are your underlings going to feel about that? Or your colleagues, is, if you want to <laughs> be politically correct. Um, so, the, 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 so to deal with, you know, first of all, you don't know what's bothering them. It may be that they're absolutely right and they shouldn't be there. But the point is they are. So if you are willing to meet them where they're at, and it can be very challenging, and my wife and I, Anita, working with me, one of the reasons that we were very effective is because we could tag team somebody, but like tag team wrestling. So Anita, who is very articulate and was a psycho, trained as a psychotherapist, so she could step in or it, shut me up. That's the other thing is I would go on talking and she and he shut up. Now, here's what the situation is. Now, what would happen is people go <laughs> in the room and anyway, put people up. But also we were modeling how do you, in an organization do you maintain relationships with people while disagreeing? Now, in a culture, I don't think this is telling, in, in a high... I won't say this happened specifically at McKinsey, but in a in a in a, in a Boston consulting group or a McKinsey very high powered uh, consulting organization, where they will they will say we encourage agreement disagreement, so you'll get first years or first months, but you can only disagree about certain things. You can't disagree, for instance, 
about the way people behave, which is the only thing counts, by the way, because it's great to be able to analyze systems. And I've met some incredibly bright people. I'm sure you're very bright yourself. Tim is very bright, who, look, who are trained to look at a, a system and figure out, okay, here's probably where the weak spot is. Here's where, where we have to tra trace this down. If we did this, we can do this. Problem is that until everything's run by robots, you got to convince somebody to do something different, which means you have to deal with somebody who's like, help you when it's just going to end with me getting thrown out of work. And when we started to consult, that was really the order of the day. Everything was changing and change went from being, oh, so great. We'll be able to empower people to spoon people. God, oh, this is just a way to fire us or make us work twice as hard for half the money. So you had, you had some incredibly skeptical people who had to ask themselves realist, realistically, why am I here? And if I decide to be here, how can I make it so that it's better for me? So that my, my working conditions are better. And if, if that's the case, under most conditions, not all, that will be better for the whole team. I mean, one of the disasters about having a leader like Trump and his gang, merry gang of corrupt officials is that it destroys trust in the whole organization and everything becomes less efficient. I mean, that's to say it's a nightmare. You know, when Thatcher and Blair in the UK uh, deprofessionalized, politicized the civil service, you got this huge amount of, of, uh, Turbulence. We happened to do a bit of work and with with civil servants under those conditions, and and it happens because you precisely because there is no uh, way in which my legitimate concerns and there are some illegitimate, but my legitimate concerns are being received by the powers that be. I was talking about the when the the na the nationalized industries were made private. We attended a, another meeting for analytic purposes to, uh, of uh, national power back in the long time ago. And at that time, guys who had been civil servants were, were suddenly were capitalists, capitalist captains of industry. And they knew no more how to be captains of industry than they knew, you know, uh, at least that was my impression. So we had this guy who had been a manager, probably quite a good manager in his day, show up at this big meeting an hour and a half late. And there were people, so A, the consultants, we had to keep busking to try and keep people interested. He shows up an hour and a half late and doesn't even bother to apologize. There's a room full of people concerned about whether they're gonna still be working after the downsizing. And this guy comes in now, do you have any questions of concern that I should know about? And people were raising, timidly raising their hands and asking questions, te little technical questions. No one would say, USOB, don't you even give enough of a crap about us to get here on time? No, I was too important. He sent the message, I was, you know, all right, you have to do the work, but soon half of you won't be. 
Right, I see. And so he, but because he wasn't modeling being vulnerable or opening up and saying, hey, I know. Oh, I'm yes, not yes, of course, yes. He couldn't, he couldn't actually take charge of the, yes, they, 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 deference. And, and okay, so then he, he kind of locks, so the way I'm reading this is he's kind of locking down the meeting somehow, right? Because he's not, he's not. And he's losing, the, he's losing the, of course, some people will, will get, because of his position. But there's a room full of 450, uh, I don't know if you call them senior manager, middle manager, but in, in that senior rank, who are sitting in a room with somebody who's sending the signal, I don't really care about you. And, and soon I'll have to go. I can't take too many questions. Sorry, I have to be off. And he goes. Well, you know, no matter what people say, that's not, that's not, it's not a way to to galvanize the morale of a room, right? And it's not. And to your point, he's not going with the energy. That does not give him the opportunity to find where the energy in the room is, right? That's he's right. If he'd have come in and said, said, "Look, I am," if he'd have come in and said, "Look, I'm." First of all, I want to apologize to everybody. Okay, I'm very sorry. Uh, I got caught up in. Uh, uh, I know this doesn't make up. I got caught up in traffic. So I'm going to skip this long, boring talk that we did. And I'm going to hit you with the two, three points, you know, whatever they were. We're going to do this. You know, you're going to have to reapply for your jobs. And, you know, the room would go up in smoke. And here's what we want from you uh, to be able to make these important decisions. And here's what we have to support you. Or whatever, whatever his message is. I think the the... The big challenge, and it is hard, believe me, and I know that sometimes you're dealing with confidential material, you can't say that, but there are ways in which you can um, be there to handle, even if you don't resolve the issue, but you're there and they'll say, well, at least you didn't run away. And it will happen, it will happen where the sun doesn't shine in their brains. That's the point. Mm. And, um, I've had many, uh, and um, uh, it doesn't seem like it, but except under certain conditions, when leaders um, uh, move off their high horse to address people on a level playing field, they have a lot of power, especially when they have a lot of credibility. And we're back. We've had a quick scene change. We're ready for part two. The other topic I'd love to get before we end is you. We pre pre the podcast we had this fascinating conversation about how to think about change programs as being actors in a, in a play and, and characters and a, and that that whole sort of mindset around what's happening in terms of a change process was was really interesting to me and I think will be interesting to the audience. So that's good. I, I hope so. Uh, but I just kind of wanted to finish up this beat, which is that. Um, as a result of being awake, alive, available, and all these things, and and the the just to recap to to uh, to stop for a moment, look at your breathe, look at your audience, get your attention off yourself. What's happening with them? And the 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 next couple of steps, which were devoted to developing a facilitator's eye in a group, uh, and which was see what's there. That was the next step, really. Uh, 
slow down, see what's there, and then say what you see. So, for example, when I was saying, if you spot somebody in the room with their arms crossed or who's disgruntled, you say, well, I see your, your, or, or, it's possible that you're, you disagree with what I'm saying or, uh, so you, you, you pick up on, on, on what's there. And um, that is crucial to actually see what's there and say what you see because our seeing is so filled with uh, the possibilities of, of uh, distortions. And I think that it's of incredibly uh, valuable use to practice seeing what's there. Right. So, um, and to actually say it. So I see your, sometimes even as something as simple as saying, I see you're, you're taking some notes. I'm wondering what, what, what's the important issue? I mean, what's the, for you? And then we can begin to go back and forth. Um, or I see your arms are crossed and you're leaning back. I'm wondering, is there something you disagree with? Right. You know, uh, is so the whole point here is to stay present. And as a leader and as a, um, I think it's just a general, generally as a human being, uh, it, that, that there are moments of high uh, tension. If you can be present, you're all, at least half the battle's already won. So I was talking about the fact that Anita and I, my wife and I, ran this course at PW for almost 10 years, PW and then PWC and some at McKinsey and, and at a few other places, we ran this course called Into the Danger Zone, which was really about going where the energy is. It's what I said. It's like move towards the dragon. That which you fear, um, especially in settings like this, that really that are more psychologically dangerous they feel more dangerous than they're really dangerous um i remember once i i just thought that this might be amusing to people um in my early days i was i taught bingo callers i think i mentioned this uh, yeah, right. helping them become more charismatic and legs 11. and again using this idea that, well, you know, nobody dies when you're making a presentation. So it, you take your, you, you can relax. So I said this to a group of bingo callers. I said, come on, guys, raise your hand. How many people have had people die while you were calling bingo? And about seven hands went up. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. Let's, let's explore this. I said, somebody tell me what happened. And I had two or three stories, that, like of which were, well, there was this couple that always came in, and uh, one day he had a heart attack, and all she did was put her arm around him and finished his bingo card. And the, but to get that feedback from the room full of people who were feeling relaxed enough with me not to do, not to, to give me the answer that I was clearly fishing for. I was fishing for saying, you know, how many people have died while you were presenting? Well, and people usually say, well, nobody. So, I, so relax. You're, you're not a brain surgeon. You're not a pilot flying a plane full of people over the Hudson River when all the engines go out. You know, 
you can relax. But these people just said, no, we've had people die on us. I don't know what point I was making, but anyway, it's, it's worthwhile saying that story. Okay. Now you've asked uh, about this change, um, uh, about the model or my attitude or my picture of, of what can help leaders affect change. Uh, and I'll send you a bit of material, which I guess you could post for people to read, but, yeah. but uh, uh, the key here is that it, it, this idea emerged out of studying uh, a colleague of mine and I, a, psycho a psychologist named Tony Page, we decided that it might be useful for us to write an article on how leaders improvise. So we interviewed about 10 leaders that we knew from client work that we had done who were leaders or closely advising leaders in a change process. And to our surprise, we were, improvisation took a slight back seat because we discovered there was a huge amount of conflict. I said, we were doing a kind of, you know, consultants analysis of, so what are the major themes that are coming out of these interviews? And uh, Tony said, well, there's a lot of conflict. And suddenly the, the, the penny dropped. And I thought, well, conflict is, the, the, in, a, in, a, in a way, the heart of drama. So could it be that what we're seeing is actually a kind of um, uh, a, a three-act play. Could be th thought of as a three-act play, and not only that, but could could because the the, the notion of a three-act play, which Aristotle never actually said, but has been derived from Aristotle's analysis of drama, uh, is kind of you know almost so simple that you disregard it, but all successful stories have, a, and dramas have beginning, middles and ends, and dramatic stories have a typical shape and typical things that happen in these three phases. Now it's a little bit more complex than this, but, but I'll give you the simplified version, which is beginnings, the hero, assuming there is a hero, and it can be a hero in the conventional sense of a single person. It doesn't need to be a man, doesn't need to be a woman, or it can also be a group of people. So you can actually think of a drama as involving, say, the board uh, or the workforce. And we, of course, we think, of, we think of, if you think of a change program, the workforce, the union, uh, uh, the customer, I mean, we make these kind of generalizations because these are really communities of interest that can be more or less assumed to have, not, not always, but more or less assumed to have the same interests and the same goals. Shareholders probably care to a certain extent how the companies run, but mainly they want their money, which is one of the, I suppose you could say, good and bad things that come out of corporations. 
but we can certainly think of them as an entity. And so the beginning of a, of a drama, Aristotelian drama, is characterized by a hero making a decision. That's the first act. So you couldn't get any more classical than Oedipus Rex, and, and the first act of Oedipus Rex, although it's all one long play, about 90 minutes long, is that Oedipus decides to send messengers to Delphi to find out what the heck is going on with all this stuff. So the first act of a story, of a dramatic story, is characterized by a hero making a decision. The second act, which are, is, is the most difficult to write and probably the most difficult for heroes, if, if, if this is, has any application to real life, to get through, is where you, conf it's, it's the act of confrontation, conflict, and, and um, uh, uh, finding allies and discovering who your enemy might really be. And in many cases, not all, but in many cases, it ends with a provisional solution. Um, in Star Wars, they, they which is, okay, the, the it, second act ends when they get the plans to the Death Star and fly away in the spaceship. Okay, right. so they're gonna escape back to the rebel stronghold. Yeah. So it looks like they've, they've done what they set out to do. They've gotten the, they have to, they rescued the princess and they got the plans to the Death Star and they escaped to tell the rebels what was happening. So that's the end of act two. And it's ended in a provisional solution. And I say provisional because in the third act, that solution is tested. Um, the, the, it looks like the heroes may have won, but actually they probably didn't. And this is most easily seen in, for example, Star Wars again, the, the original one, the first one, which is um, Darth Vader puts a tracking device on their ship, which of course they conveniently never thought of. And he now says, I'm going to really bring, bring, bring the shadow or the bad guy to bear. And there is a final battle. And that final battle or the third act is characterized by a change. This was the key that kind of got me thinking about this because it has to be a real change. In the case of, say, Luke Skywalker, he, his change is not radical, but it is he goes from being a farm boy to a warrior, basically, to a Jedi. And that's his transformation. He, he becomes something he never thought he could be. Um, now, let's, the, n n not a lot of the younger people in your audience will know Casablanca, but Casablanca is one of the great movies, Hollywood movies. And in it, the, the hero makes, also makes a big change. He goes from just wanting to get back with uh, Ingrid Bergman, and who wouldn't want to do that? Okay, but uh, uh, and but he goes from that to changing and becoming committed to the fight against Hitler. Uh, so he goes from being very selfish. This is a much more radical transformation to altruistic because he had the he had he had rejected that side of himself. But the pressure of the drama meant that he had to go back into that shadowy stuff that he thought he had rejected and reclaim it. And this is almost crystal clear with Scrooge. Scrooge, 
okay, is, is the hero, even though he starts out as really an anti-hero. He's a miserable mm. sinner who, who is tight wad, tight fisted, you know, we know the story, you know, bah humbug. And yet he becomes completely generous. And again, it, it's odd to think of it this way, but the shadow of Scrooge, this, this uh, and I call it the shadow because it's the, it's the enemy within the shadow is, um, inside the hero, he's rejected his loving self. Uh, you, we see it at the beginning when he, we visit him in school and his father didn't want him home. And so he's rejected that part of himself. And the drama forces him to draw on that in order to save himself. And he does. And so he then becomes generous. And it's that ending of A Christmas Carol that always makes everybody weep. I don't care who you are, because we do feel that there is something, he finds redemption. He's able to redeem him himself. And uh, so that journey where, uh, where you go through these crises, which I call the crisis of disruption, and I'll get uh, the crisis of direction, the crisis of commitment, and then the crisis of transformation, they don't always neatly fit into the act structure, but the acts give us a sense of beginning, decision, middle, confrontation, and end transformation, if there's a transformation. In real life, many change programs, indeed most, if the statistics are still holding that it's 75% uh, uh, of change programs fail in one degree or another. That's right. I think it's improved. It's a standard. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a pretty well. A little bit, but yeah, it's not. It's still not. So great. usually that transformation doesn't happen, and you can interestingly enough see if you do the research, uh, and and begin to think this way. Oh yes, okay. They passed through. They were able to get the company to make the decision to change, but the transformation, the, the 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 tests, the confrontations, the conflict was so great that they couldn't get to the transformation phase. But uh, so what we realized through all this, I had some theory and some uh, coming from things that these people said, was that successful leaders were able to, in a, I wouldn't, I don't want to say were chameleons there, they, they also, uh, but they play three different roles, at least three different roles in this change journey. The first role they play, and this will make sense to almost everybody who's familiar with change as a consultant, is the crisis of disruption. So the leader, either using consultants or allies within the organization, will capitalize on something that's happening and 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 heighten the disruption to make people feel there's something, I've got to do something. Um, this can be quite hard because big organizations, as has been well documented, just don't want to change. Mm. You know, the, the, the Titanic takes a long time to, and we had a lot of statements from, uh, you know, a big uh, manufacturing companies with workforces in the hundreds, 150,000 
that this was incredibly difficult because the construction of the interests of the various possible protagonists was so complicated. It, it had merged itself into this big thing. And I also hear a lot in organizations this fear of, well, we, well, we don't want to set the hairs running. That's a, co- a common theme, isn't it? So this idea right. of heightening disruption, often managers, I think, see their role as, as containing disruption. That's right. And, containing and the, problems. That's right. And that, that you would see, and I've forgotten the, the authors, but here, here the notion of the difference between leadership and management is useful. Because leadership, leaders disrupt for better or for worse, in, in, in America's case right now, it's for worse. No question about it, in my view. But um, uh, uh, leaders have a role to play in disrupting. Now, in the archetypal drama, there is a character function called the herald. And the herald disrupts. And uh, 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 heralds are can be all sorts of things. It can be a phone call. The hero gets a phone call that disrupts the status quo. Um, in real life, I, I sometimes use the 9-11 uh, example. When the plane goes into the building, you can't deny that America doesn't have a very good relationship with a number of Middle Eastern countries or groups. It's like it becomes painfully undeniable. Uh, so, and you could say that serves a herald function. And then, of course, you had, I can look back, I gave this some thought. I, I don't know if I'll have all the details right now because it's been years since I thought this particular one through. But, but Bush then, uh, I'm talking about President George Bush, amplifies that. And so does Blair. There's a lot of amplifying of the disruption. Right. Uh, and, and usually coupled with how bad they are. I can remember several lies told by both of them. I remember uh, a couple of uh, British soldiers took a wrong turn and got lost in the desert. And Blair blew it up into, oh, they were killed in horrible ways, their skin was stripped. I mean, you know, it was like disgusting. But leaders do, do, do versions of that, for better or for worse. Uh, okay, Hitler, the Reichstag fire, that's another huge heralding function. Um, in, in examples uh, that are for organizational change, it may be just, uh, I'm trying to think of, yeah, it may be just the threat of closure. Um, I worked, I did a long interview uh, with a guy who was the general manager of a bottling plant for Guinness up north. And the he was called in to inform everybody, you either change and become more efficient or we have to close this plant down. And that's not an untypical thing. At least the, uh, the top management was being clear enough with the people to make them real. But even with the threat, like my bingo callers, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you try and do it, try and close it. And wh- why wouldn't they? And, and, and so the, the, this is really, this, is, this was the clincher for me because I was so familiar with resistance both in the classroom and hearing it reported in change programs. Um, there is a phase of Joseph Campbell's, uh, Joseph Campbell's um, architecture, which is, can be mapped 
neatly onto Aristotle's, uh, called The Refusal of the Call. And Joseph it's, Campbell was the hero's journey, right? For yeah, that's right. Years. Joseph Campbell was the hero's journey. And it maps very nicely onto Aristotle's three-act structure. And the, the, the hero is called to adventure. That's, that's what the herald does. It calls the, and, and, and the leader calls the organization to adventure. Now, a lot of people, I mean, uh, George, the, the, I, I don't want to use political examples, but, but a lot of people, a lot of leaders um, don't realize how long this takes, how long it takes to actually get the organization to realize that, that there's something serious happening and that if they don't act, I mean, look at climate change. It's unbelievable. What, what has to happen in America? You know, it's like, finally, what's going to happen is the insurance companies won't insure anybody anymore. And finally, people go, geez, they're not insuring us anymore. Oh, I wonder what's wrong. Um, but this refusal of the call is a crucial step. So the hero is called to adventure. And that hero, again, can be multiple, a group acting with a common interest. Um, and they refuse the call. So that combination of call and refusal is what I call the crisis of disruption. The leader functions as the herald, calling the organization to adventure and saying, well, things have got to change. And people say, oh, no, they don't. <laughs> You're going, oh, yes, they do. And uh, leaders have various ways of making that clear. And if they don't, it's pretty much stuck there. If they just send in consultants, they've got, it, it really has to be something that is alarming. And, you know, I didn't stop smoking until I didn't have a heart attack, but I had pretty severe angina. So I so finally thought, oh, I guess it's time to quit. And you know, it's amazing. Didn't have a problem. I quit. Because uh, the, the, the call to adventure was very strong. In my case, it was quite painful. And that set me on a journey. And the next thing I did was what anybody who was suffering a, and, and uh, who are suffering a physical challenge is you go to a doctor. I mean, you know, unless you're a complete idiot, or I guess you could go to a priest, but I went to a doctor. I went to several doctors actually. But, but the point is you go to what Joseph Campbell calls the mentor. So if you can imagine that as a leader, you're playing the herald, you disrupt things, you go through a crisis of disruption, which can be, by the way, if you don't like conflict, some leaders like conflict, but if you don't, it can be quite challenging to you to occupy that role. And I see what you mean about distinguishing between a leader and a manager, because because well, at least the role of manager isn't really taking that on, right? That's something and different. Of course not, this, because this your job is to make things function smoothly. Hmm. I mean, your, your job is to, so if you're going to have change, incremental change is what you, you know, let's get another percent of, out of this, but let's get 40%. Management just fails. It's not that management fails, but management goes out of its depth. You need some other aspect. And there's been a, quite a lot of work on this difference between management and leadership. Again, I, I could send you the authors, but they're, it's escaped my mind, but great. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I won't struggle to, to remember, but the difference, that, but managers can't, ma 
if you're acting within the bounds of what's defined as management, your job is to make things run smoothly, not to disrupt things. That's right. the last thing you want. You know, right. you, you want you want to not disrupt things. You want them to run smoothly because that's what you're paid for. That's your job. But leaders are different. Leaders have to disrupt things because change is difficult. And change, remember I was talking about how transformation is one of the things that happens with drama. Well, um, that is, uh, 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 that, 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 that's the key that opened the door that I thought, well, okay, is dramatic structure applicable? So let's talk about this second crisis. I call it the crisis of direction. Now the mentor's function is to take the fear out of the, the, this disruption. So I get disrupted, I feel very bad, I go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, uh, um, if you get, this, this is true. Uh, you do have a brain tumor, but of all the kinds of brain tumors you could have, this is the one you get. This is the one to get because it's benign, historically benign, and it causes no problem uh, unless it does what yours is not doing. So I was incredibly reassured, I but I worked very hard to get the advice I needed. Now, what leaders do is in challenging, taking a, a group through the disruption, Disruption brings up fear. It will always bring up fear in individuals and in groups. And mentors then act to help the hero cope with his or her fear and give them a plan, a course of training. You, you, remember, you know these films where people, there used to be a TV show called The A-Team where they, there was always a segment where they had to plan their deal. And, the music would play and, you know, these I people would yeah. put together machines and do all okay. that is a mentor function. And I'm, I'm just thinking related to my own experience. Um, so for me, it was waking up on the couch at sort of two in the afternoon from another heavy drinking session, me having that moment. Okay. I'm going to stop. Right. You know, I've got to quit the drink. And then I found a, uh, a 12 step group. And then right. yeah, that sort of served as my mentor in terms of, okay, well, how am I going to organize my life without drink? And da, da, da. Right, I get That's it. right. And you need help. Yeah. And leaders, wise leaders, first of all, they disrupt on the level. They, they don't just disrupt like that idiot man I described from national power, arriving an hour and a half late and making people upset and then leaving without any care. Mentor, uh, heralds call heroes to adventure. When the heroes refuse the call, the, and, 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 and the mentor comes in a bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi in, in Star Wars and says, here's the history. This is what you have to do if you want. Oh, and here's the task. Just in case you were wondering, Luke, save the universe. That's all. Don't worry, I'll help. And really, to, to, to people working in an organization, if they, are dis, if they go through the crisis of disruption, they, want to, they don't want to be spoken to like children. On the other hand, so they can be consulted with and should be consulted with. On the other hand, there's a function of mentoring, which is very tough, kind of tough love. Hmm. And you see, I mean, Gandalf is a great example. You read The Lord of the Rings. He's a really gruff, tough SOB, really. 
he's not going to monkey around and just be a kind of nice guy who's taking your pulse. You know what I'm saying? Because he is focused and or she is focused in the case of a female mentor on the goal and on how the hero who is the only one who can accomplish this, so the myth says, um, has to find the power within themselves to, to commit. And that's the third stage. So first stage is disruption. I, as a, I play the role of the mentor, sorry, of the herald, and I disrupt and get a team of people to help me disrupt. And then when the refusal comes, I have to deal with that few refusal, go back and forth, but then I become, then I occupy the role of the mentor, which is mean I advise, I guide. Heralds disrupt, challenge and warn, mentors guide, advise, train, give magical gifts, plans, that kind of thing. The net, okay, so now we've got a, a, an organization, a workforce that let's, say it's the workforce is the hero in this case, the workforce has accepted the need to change. The mentor has worked with the workforce to work out what the plan is going to be and where you want to try and end up, what the goal is. It doesn't just, the mentor doesn't just give the goal, but there are elements of that. So it goes back and forth, but I'm, I'm one wonderful guy who was great, who turn, turned around this bottling plant up in, up in Runcorn, it was. And um, he was very good because he got incredible amounts of feedback, worked very cooperatively to build a plan, and then said, okay, now we're going to do it. And they still, even though the unions agree, the workforce dug their heels in. So he said, okay, here's the deal. Um, in a week or two weeks, we're going to start the new plan. Whether you like the idea or not, you voted against it, too bad. Because he'd listen, he said, what I did was listen to them. They could see that I was listening to them, but no one wants to make that decision. This, is, this was his words. So you have to make it for them. And that's quite a brilliant observation, which is, um, and, and to do that, that is the third crisis, which I call the crisis of commitment. It's where the manager has to enact the role of the hero. Heroes, traditionally, they, they fight, they don't stop, they see the story through to the end. That's the commitment of the hero. They also have a huge function when it comes to change, uh, which I'll get to in a minute. But at the place where this guy said, okay, I've listened to you. I like you all. Too bad. Here's the deal. And guess what? Nobody objected. Even though they didn't vote for it. He even got the union saying, this is the best deal you're ever going to get. You're going to get 8,000 pounds for nothing, just for showing up. Uh, he worked out a very fair deal. And, in the, and the whole change process only lost 3% of the workforce. Right. Everybody changed. It reminds me of that scene in is it Invictus with uh, Nelson Mandela, who well, the actor playing him, says that he's getting all this resistance like, uh, from his political friends um, to continue with the Springboks, the, the white South African rugby team. Right, right, right. right. And he, st he stands and he says, no, no, we're going to support this team. 
right. um, in right. the face of this wall of resistance. And it's like he made the decision for them. You know, we we need to model a, you know, that's right. Uh, that's right. This is and that is the, the, the hero function. Now, when it happens, when the, when the leader passes through this crisis, resolves this crisis, what the effect on the organization, okay, when the leader, the effect on the organization is people commit to the change they've been talking about. And this is where many programs fail. They'll have a great change program. Even some of the top consultancies, like for example, McKinsey and I, uh, wrestle with this challenge. We, everybody agrees this is the thing to do and nobody will do it. So how do we do this? Well, we hire a psychologist. No, that won't work. If the leader, and, and it's so, the example is, I mean, you, you could see it with F, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in, in, in America in the uh, depression. It was not only the programs, the guy could hardly stand on his own two feet without help. So when he kept people away and managed to stand at the podium, the people were going, if he can do that, we can do anything. And they transformed America. Not forever, but for a good stretch of time. Now, um, so there is those, those three crises and they can happen, I think for various reasons that I won't go into, they usually happen in that they are, the three of them together causes people to decide to change. And then they, each individual and group within the larger group of say the workforce, they have to meet a series of crises with their teams. Uh, so, they, so the workforce then enters into the second act, which is confrontation, crisis, conflict, and so forth. And during that phase, the leader has to keep moving back and forth between these roles. Got to disrupt a little bit, frighten people, then got to mentor them, then got to act heroically uh, act to, to, against opposition, then go back, then mentor. So they have to be, a good, a good leader has to be very, very flexible in this. Um, I think probably in military situations is a little more cut and dried because the stakes are so high. But in civilian situations, I think the situation is much more fluid and uh, uh, people may not die. They may lose their jobs, but they may not think they'll really lose their jobs. So uh, it's, it's not quite as straightforward as it might be in a military situation, but it follows the same pattern. Now, then the big question comes, okay, the organization reaches its second act uh, climax. I won't go into all the detail uh, about this, but this is the place where the leader has to demonstrate the change. Uh, they actually, successful leaders are seen to transform. And it, 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 it becomes uh, slightly complex to describe this, but um, organizations, he has to, he or she, I keep saying he, I don't mean to do that. He or she has to find a way, usually through their own willingness to change, to get the organization, people within the organization to actually change. Now, 
I want to explain this. I can give a very good example. I don't know. I hope it doesn't take too long. But there's a movie called High Noon, which a lot of people know, Gary Cooper. And the real hero of High Noon is not Gary Cooper. He's one of the heroes. He performs a hero function because he's Gary Cooper and he ain't. You know, he's going, he ain't going to run out on the people, even when they don't deserve his support. But the real hero, from the point of view of the myth, is the Grace Kelly character, his wife. Because she goes from being against violence, that's where she starts. And she threatens to leave Gary Cooper by saying, I cannot put up with this. I'm, it's against, I'm a Quaker. I'm against violence. I cannot uh, do this. And he, it doesn't change me. He won't leave. So she, she reaches into her shadow, picks up a gun and shoots his enemy in the back, which is a violation of every code of the West. There is, you don't shoot people in the back. You know, this is the American myth. What she does is very typical of what heroes have to do is they reach in to the part of themselves that they they didn't think that was dark that was bad that they thought was bad uh, and they need that part to pass through this to change and when they change they really do they change i i've often called this i call it the crisis of transformation but it's really a crisis of identity you become somebody different mm. And it means that you, I mean, life forces this on you um, when you're, when you grow older, because there were things that you would face without a second thing, like buying an airplane ticket. Believe me, when you get older, buying an airplane ticket becomes an act of heroism. It becomes, it's like the change, the contemplation of the being in the tin can in the sky, whatever it is, it can become quite daunting. So it's to be able to actually face that, you have to be some, you have to reach into some part of yourself. You have to dig deep. Now, um, like, like uh, the Grace Kelly character did, like Scrooge does, Scrooge reaches into the, his rejected, only his, it's a positive thing he's rejected because he was a bastard to begin with. He's a, he's a hero at the end. He's a, a, a good saint at the end. But you reach into the neglected. Now, the example I'll use, if I can remember the details of it, I hope I can. Um, okay. In the 90s, IBM woke up one morning and found there was six or eight billion dollars in debt. I forget what the exact thing was. And their commitment in the conscious commitment as an organization was to these big systems these big mainframes, that was their claim to fame. Now we're, we're going back a ways because we don't think of that so much anymore. But that was what business computing was. It was like IBM would come in and put you, you in the basement, they'd put one of these big machines. But somebody in IBM thought, hmm, maybe, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe we should have individual workstations, you know, which are now taken over the world. Didn't say we should have apples, but, but we should have PCs. Now that was so counter the culture 
that the managers who were leading that initiative had, you know, it's like organizations are wonderful the way they can bury things. So they had to not let the hierarchy know too much about what they were doing. Oh, well, indulge the kids, you know, we'll let them. The only thing that got them out of that mess was distributed systems, which was completely different than the monolithic. And that was in the organizational shadow. That was, if you, if you worked in that system, you were ridiculed, they didn't think very much of you, oh, you're stuck in that department, and so forth, and so on. And there are uh, many stories of organizations that where, where in a kind of counterculture within the culture, there's criminals doing things that, that shouldn't, the organization doesn't want to spend its time doing that end up being the thing that's right. And, and the leadership has to, to pull that in, ultimately has to pull that into the mainstream. And this, this reminds me of um, Kodak, right? Because apparently right. Kodak will, had in their R&D department one of the earliest digital cameras. <laughs> and so in, in this context, we could say they failed to pull that out of the shadow. That's right. And bring it into their into That's their right. That's right. And, I, and I'll tell you, it's really interesting. And I think Blockbuster had a streaming service as well, right? So there may be other examples. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course. Because, and the leadership, I mean, and, and believe me, I'm... I am so slow. I, I become an expert on change because I've had to cope with change, but left to my own devices, I wouldn't change. Why? <laughs> you have to. You have to change, and they, 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 that's a, such good examples because um, uh, the 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 business once upon a time at Blockbuster was people like me going in on a Saturday night and running two or three discs, you know, and that happened. Zillions of stores, and it wouldn't surprise me that streaming service, what's that? You know, you can see the people saying, they can laugh, I can hear them laughing at it at the board meeting. Or, so, and, 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 and it, is, it is the crucial thing that, it's what visionaries are able to do. Uh, it's it, within an organization. Oh, there's another great example, the post-it note. I know this because I did some research on this was my first case. Art Fry was the guy who invented the glue that wouldn't stick to anything very well. And he didn't even invent it. It's at IBM they had a great way of dealing with failure, which usually is put in the shadow. Well, you tried something, you screwed up, post it, put it somewhere where <laughs> where a few people can play around with it. And they actually had some category where 15% of your time you could play around with something that wasn't working. And uh, he discovered that they'd made a glue that was supposed to stick to everything and it didn't stick to anything. They, you know, they poured the wrong ingredient in or something. I don't know the story of it. But, and he was a, he was a churchgoer and he, he realized that you could put this stuff on a piece of paper and it would temporarily stick. You know, which everybody thought was loony. Well, why would you got a thumbtack to make things stick? Or you take a piece of tape. You don't put the tape on the paper. What a dumb idea that is. And he made repositionable hymnal markers. That was his first go at the post-it note. And he made these things, and they laughed at him, or equivalent. I mean, he, he stayed within the company. He wasn't an entrepreneur. He was, he was an entrepreneur within the company. And... But he kept up at it, and he even, he said, okay, I'll give you a demonstration, and he took one of those old mimeograph machines that had 
he was a very inventive guy that had <laughs> that had handles and he rigged up a thing that would put the glue on pieces of paper and he cranked it through and he said look now we can do this we could do an industrial process this could be made to an industrial process and he managed to convince somebody and they tried to test and of course a couple of the tests no one was even interested but suddenly it went viral the equivalent of viral for the early 90s or late 80s or whenever this was and of course now who you know post-it notes are everywhere post-it things are everywhere and i think ibm i think i'm uh, not ibm but 3m and i can't say this from research but just from anecdotal evidence uh, and what i what i what i saw through through this uh through this particular lens of this particular story was they had a, at least at that time, a structural way of dealing with the shadow, dealing with these things that might, that look like they're a failure, but actually could be the key to success. Mm. And, and I think the post-it notes must've made billions for 3M, you know, not just sandpaper and, you know, and, cleaning fluid and all the other stuff that they do but that you know and that to me uh is a, is a crucial example of organizations that may have developed ways to keep these elements in play so that they can be drawn on now they may fail uh, but the shadow is that stuff that you 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 don't see. It's in it's in the. But you will need, you will need that to save the day, and to make the transformation. And when organizations truly change, it's not forever. But the deeper the change of the, uh, in my view, the crisis of transformation is resolved. The deeper the the way that people change the way they think about a problem or each other or their place within the organization, the more sustained the change will be. Now I can't, cause I, I didn't interview anyone from any high tech. So I don't know what it's like at Google and I don't know what it's like at Apple, although Apple probably would be an interesting study for all the drama that they've had going on. Um, but I think it is the case that how organizations work and what leaders have to do. So leaders have to disrupt. They have to play the herald. Leaders have to play the mentor or work with teams that will mentor people. Leaders have to, and this is really for the leader, they have to be the hero. They have to confront the manifestation of the shadow as it's, it's a complex uh, slightly complex story I don't want to go into now, but because I'm always a little bit confused, it'll take me an hour to suss it out. But uh, again, but the shadow is thought is first thought of like in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien calls the enemy the shadow. Um, the shadow is that which resists the 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 antagonist is that which resists the hero. So so this the unwillingness to change in an organization is bound probably to political interests of certain groups in the organization, especially if it becomes quite apparent that, that it needs to change. And again, 
have to go any further than climate change to see this. I mean, climate change is so, it's such a no brainer. And yet Enron or whoever they were once upon a time, Exxon or whoever they, Exxon Mobil, they knew about this since the seventies and that they buried the stuff and they're still denying it. So, and yet the fate of the world really hangs in the balance here. Um, right. Because if we don't, so, uh, uh, so there is the, this force that kicks off the, the need for the herald, that kicks off the need for the mentor, that kicks off the need for the hero. Um, and then, but the, the real change has to do with some, this form of using that which you've denied. Um, and I've applied this to the challenge of writing something and I use it in terms of acting, but this, this I thing that the this this picture is quite useful. Now I'm, I'm finding it fascinating, and I can see right. even in my own journey that the, the, the latter stage I talked about, you know, me confronting my alcohol use, and then and then this crisis of commitment, you know, the, these to these tests of my commitment, but then ultimately to to transform, I've had to go and dig out a lot of. Oh, yeah. out of buried right. yes, issues of... That, that, that drove the whole thing in the first place. And, right. and, to, and that maps onto organizations. I, I, I can really I see how. I and, think it does. I think that the, then the challenge becomes, so the two pro, so I want to talk about one more, one practical way that I've harnessed this picture. Um, but before I do that, you can see perhaps that the, the, at every stage of this journey, the things that we did in the danger zone help people occupy these roles, even though we didn't, we hadn't developed that picture when we were doing it. But the idea that you can get up in front of a group of people and be strong, take the high status position, and then get off the high to support somebody, to mentor them, to you know, to so you you're you're acting these various, and we even found that in a sales situation they would do it, so it, it would work, and especially in a big organization where where there are many thousands of employees represented by bosses with entrenched interests in their bit, and how the leader manages to confront and work with the leaders who then will work with the people in the down. So it's a very sim simplified picture, but I think it gives a, um, a grasp because everybody understands drama. I mean, that's, you know, we, we do it. Now, having said that, I, I wanna give a definition. I was talking about theater being the place of seeing and action, seeing and action. Drama, is the story of how conflict leads to change. And it's not just about conflict, it's about how conflict leads to change. And therefore leaders, and this is where, where some leaders fail, leaders have to be willing to change themselves and also to do things that they are not comfortable with. For some leaders to confront others is 
really challenging. And for others to not confront others is really challenging. To be able to actually listen is, is a challenge for some leaders. But as the guy who was running uh, Pricewaterhouse before the merger said, I have to I have to be able to understand what's making my people move and tick. And if I don't, I'm not going to get them on board with my project. And that's what mentors do. Mentors understand what's going on. They can put themselves in the shoes of the hero. Heralds are quite impersonal. Sorry, earthquake. You know, well, <laughs> what can you do? It's an earthquake. Tsunami coming. You know, it's like, like um, uh, it's like a force of nature in a way. So, to, uh, uh, but I think that if in the human situation, someone has to go between uh, being the herald, be disrupting, and then being a mentor, and then disrupting again, and then be so moving between these roles. They're not. I've called them these four crises, but they actually happen over and over again in various orders throughout the whole thing. All you can do, I think, as a leader is to say, is to diagnose the situation and say, I need to disrupt this thing. I'm, I can't, today is not the day to be the nice guy. Right. But and what I'm also getting is that buried in these archetypal stories is obviously there's sort of some human truths that that exist and we can use them, right, in organizations, yes. you know, instead of because so often when I'm conceiving of change initiatives, I'm thinking of, you know, boxes and phases and, you know, and to right. some extent, of course, that must be mirroring at some level these human journeys, but to bring some consciousness to it and really thinking about, well, okay, well, what what do these stages mean in terms of this human drama? And could we articulate some of these stages in terms of a more of a theatrical narrative in, right. as a way to engage? I mean, that, that's a really rich theme I can, I can see for people. Yeah. And, and myself. And yeah. Yeah. I think it is, it's a very powerful way of looking at it. And um, I remember extraordinary, I won't say that who the client was, but they were, they're a very, very big firm. Uh, it's been around for the whole, most of the 20th century and into the 21st century. And um, they had gone through a buyout. They bought another company uh, and sold them on the idea that everybody was going to be equal in this new partnership with, uh, with the big boys. And nothing could have been further from the truth. The big boys wanted something that the small boys had and would do anything to seduce them. And also the small boys had pretty much pissed on their chips. They hadn't done a good job of their own thing. I could tell you spent 30 years in the <laughs> UK with that expression. So, 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 um, but the, the point being that it was very interesting. I took them through a process that involved some of the things I'm talking about and uh, which I'm going to get to. But the outcome of this process, which only took us two hours, was that people were able to put themselves, at least temporarily, in the shoes of these archetypal energies. And including the bad guy, the shadow. 
which in their case was called the controller. Okay. And in this organization, which was run on a three monthly reporting cycle, you sold at this level of the organization, you sold so many hundreds of thousands of pounds or millions of pounds of work, or you, we threw you in the bin and you get squished. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm going to describe to you this process, but what was the interesting part is that people understand intuitively. They may not be able to do it because they haven't had practice. That, that's where the, the theater side of the training comes in, is that, okay, I need to be more assertive. Let's just use the common language. I need to be more assertive. And I have to be assertive with people. And I have to hold that assertiveness and sometimes not answer questions or sometimes say, the meeting is over, I have to be tough. I have to be a force of nature. Next time we meet, I actually wear another hat and use another part of myself to say, okay, we're all afraid here. Guess what, I'm afraid too. So what are we gonna do about it? Here's my thinking. To occupy those voices actually is not too difficult because we have them in it. Right. That's the good news. The practice using them or a intellectual um, framework is probably useful. But what happened was that, and I, I, I'm, there is a procedure or a technique in, uh, that came out of the 70s called voice dialogue, which is derived from uh, Jung's uh, active imagination, which is, he, in other words, you, and, and, and also from Gestalt, where you, you say, like Gestalt dream analysis might be somebody has a license plate, dreams of a license plate, that's all they can remember. And then they're, so instead of being asked to free associate to the license plate, the facilitator will say, well, just sit in that chair and, and speak as the license plate. So what does the license plate got to say? <laughs> well, I feel a little covered with mud or whatever, you know, whatever that, okay. So it's possible for us, as it is if you're a writer, to, to, to speak imaginatively from almost anything. A license plate, a shoe, a table, a an archetypal voice. Okay. Everybody gets the idea. Oh, Harold, the call to adventure. Oh, yeah. You can see people. You say, I, so I can say to somebody, okay, we'll have a group process. I'd like you, you win, have to win their confidences first, to speak as the Herald, as the call to adventure. What, what, tell, tell me what your function is. What, what, what is, what is your job? And people will wrestle a little bit with this. And, and you can work with a group of people too, because voice dialogue actually names a part of the self, like the controller, which we all have, the protector, the inner critic this is a big one, the creative side, the inner child, all of these possibilities. But if you use the archetype, you say, okay, well, in, in an organization in particular, so be the call to adventure or be the herald. Allow yourself... Okay, I'd like to speak to the voice of the herald, says the facilitator, which is the ritual that you do. And the group wrestles a little bit about with various questions, but finally they kind of twig, they get it. Okay, and I say, so what's your function? Well, my function is 
to call people to adventure. Great. So how do you do that? How does it happen here in this organization? Well, I'm trying to do my job and call people to adventure, but there's a lot of other people who are. So people will begin to tell you and tell each other things because they're in role, so they don't have to be themselves that they will not say, like, no one listens to us around here. We're trying to call people to adventure, but nobody listens. And people will begin to get into this voice, which they already understand as something happening to them, but then they can sit in the, the seat of the herald, just change, shift their position a little bit and start saying, all right, here's the, here's, Here's what no one's listening to. The organization is, the, the world's on fire. You know, I'm using climate change. And nobody's listening. Well, and then someone might say, well, because everyone is being the herald. So you have different perspectives on the herald that are piping up. So somebody says, well, somebody changed, but I tell you, who isn't changing the, the politicians or American politics. So you can have people begin to explore uh, the problem. So you use the voice of the archetypes in this um, as a way to teach this concept to be, they get to act it out in a funny way. Or, but the big one for this group, and this is what I wanted to get to was, we explored the shadow, we explored the, the controller with this and I never saw, it's like these people were all being run to ground by this energy within the organization. And when I asked to speak to the controller, the ex, the controller, the organizational controller, so we'd spoken to their own personal controller. It was like, I was hit by a wave of negative energy that I couldn't quite believe. It was like, like that. And I went, wow, you're pretty strong. And that being them said, yeah, and fuck you. I don't care what you think. This is what's going to happen. And some of them were shocked that they understood the voice so well. We explored this thing, this confrontation with the shadow that they were carrying in themselves or that they understood and then I said, okay, well, let's, let's put that one down for a bit. Um, now I'd like you, I'd like to speak to the voice of the mentor. This was really interesting. And suddenly everybody, even the guy who was giving me the most trouble, suddenly speaks from this universally wise voice. And he said, he said, the problem we're facing and that I, as the mentor, I want to say is we're in grief and we cannot allow ourselves to cry. So we were eaten by this organization and we, we wanted to believe the bullshit. We wanted to believe the line. And of course, they didn't get lied to completely, but they didn't realize that they had to hang around for two or three years, you know, to collect their payout. And they didn't realize that they were going to be stretched in this way. And the, the mentor said, we are grieving what we used to be. And 
And suddenly a couple people broke into tears in this room because they actually realized that as the mentor they could as a mentor they could recognize what the actual problem was it was not sales targets it was not it was not anything technical it was a human need they'd gotten themselves they they weren't sorry they'd done this because the payout was going to be substantial for them as individuals but they had to be able to negotiate this two year thing or whatever it was and, I, and, and then the mentor for one of the people, one of the younger people, because the older guys, the mentor would say, I, and I don't know if, if, if he, referring to the person in the third person, if he can stand it, if myself can stand it for this long. And one of the guys, the younger guys said, as the mentor, what I see is I have a choice. I can either leave and go out on my own. He can either leave. It's important to be slightly distant. He can either leave or go on his own, or he's going to have to change and be what this culture requires. So suddenly there was dignity, there was ownership, there was in the in the course, of, and I've seen this happen on a couple of other occasions to very strongly entrenched voices that nobody wants to hear that are in the shadow. Brilliant. Uh, with with um there was a group of consultants that was angry with working with clients that were so controlling. Well, guess who was controlling? <laughs> you know, the shadow within the consultants. And when they had a chance to be that, suddenly they weren't so much in the grip of it. So they could then act more freely with the client and that everybody became a little bit less controlling. Right. And how I can see this is potentially different from other facilitation techniques where you're simply trying to get people comfortable and we talk about psychological safety is that there may be a tendency for people to talk from what's their natural role. But by giving them this different hat, they can perhaps express something different. And by giving a kind of archetype that the whole team can recognize, they can kind of speak collectively. Right, exactly. And the they may have different views on the collective view. Mm. And sometimes within a group, they'll say, well, I don't, I disagree. I said, well, you know, the, the voice of the mentor is very big, or the voice of the hero is very big. So there are all kinds of heroes. So we could, it, it, it doesn't have to have a party line here, because right. people will know what they know in themselves, what hero means. And you can see it when people, you, you call for the voice of the hero, suddenly people sit up. And what I also like about it is because there's a, there's other techniques that come to mind like uh, De Bono's hats, right? Where sure, the red sure. Hat the hats is, hat. is a very uses a similar func function. Similar, but I can see. But that to me is somehow slightly more technical. This feels much more engaging because it's like we all know stories that we can relate this to. You know, different coloured hats isn't this yeah engaging yeah. and as sort of salient in terms of our experience of movies or books or whatever it might be. So. I can I can really see the power in it. What happens is people inhabit these voices a little bit more fully because hats you wear. Voices are something you can you kind of bring to the front of your your yourself. And everybody knows that we have different sides. You can say to a room, how's the inner critic today? And no one will not know what you're talking about <laughs> because we all have the judge that sits on our shoulder and tells us both good and bad, you know, stop drinking. That's good advice. You know, you're a complete shit. Why can't you stop drinking? Have another drink. <laughs> Whatever it is that you're wrestling with. 
Yeah, um, I said. Uh, uh, the value of this, what I call change, the change journey process, or it's, uh, my, I'll, I'll send you a link to the book and all, all that, uh, which, which gives an, a very good example. Uh, of, I was working with writers, but you, you, you for, uh, because there's also a, the crises apply to any creative endeavor. And I look at leadership as a creative endeavor. Second best me to, to, to say that in a cut in so many weeks. Yeah. It, 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 it's creative because as a leader, I mean, when you think of what the great, what Gandhi did, okay, what Martin Luther King did, they create, they, they did, they created a new world in a way. Uh, the world that we inhabit today, that, that black people inhabit today in America is thank God it's similar because they're the the assholes have not stopped being assholes or, or their sons have not stopped being assholes but the but things have changed there is it's possible thing change is possible uh we're meeting a big challenge there's a big hero's journey that's people were hoping they wouldn't have to fight again but they are but the point is that people make a difference when they leaders make a difference fdr made a huge difference maggie thatcher sorry to say, made a huge difference. I wasn't, okay. Uh, um, uh, uh, the, the Labor Party, when Nye Bevan made a huge difference when the National Health Service was created. The problems are solved. But it, it's a creative act. I believe that leadership is a creative act. And therefore, the processes are not completely dissimilar. Let's put it that way. And this, the high-level viewpoint that this that I've been talking about is quite similar. If you, in trying to finish a book, I know this. It never is what you thought at the beginning. It's transformed, right? Just not what you thought it was going to be. Fantastic. Um, so that that's anyway. So that's. Um, well, that may be the, 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 a good place to wrap it up. You know, leadership is a creative act. I, I, I like right. it. Yeah. I, um, so let's make sure that for people who this has really piqued their interest, and I'm hoping that there will be listeners out there who, for whom this is fascinating, it's certainly been fascinating for me. Would, so resources. So you mentioned... Um, right. Yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that the when I talked about the theater of, uh, the of leadership, but it really is about dealing with stage fright. And this is my wife's book. It's, as you can see, it's incredibly thin and easy to read. Uh, for people just listening, that's the title of the book is Stage Fright. Yeah, yeah it's called Stage Fright by Anita Harmon. Yeah. Anita B. It's on, available on Kindle. Um, and um, Here is the book that I wrote for writers, but it has the theory in it. Mm. And um, I, I will send you, I don't know, um, a couple of pieces. Um, not only from this book, uh, I don't know if you post anything along with these. Oh, no, we put it on the show notes. So, yeah, absolutely. If you've yeah. got some excerpts that we can link to, we'll do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
um, uh, I'll send you the excerpts, and if you need a, I can I can make them as links easily. Yeah. Uh, uh, post them on on up in the, some cloud service somewhere. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a Microsoft or Dropbox or somewhere. I've yet made Dropbox. Dropbox. Um, the the but there's also a um, uh, yeah. What what did I want to say? Well, that's 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 it really. There, 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 I, oh yes, there's also a, anyone who's interested in my background, wh where this came from, which has to do with my background as a director and as as an author, as a playwright. Um, I'll send a link to. I did. There was a nice interview that was done uh, with me by a, a UK publisher is electronic, does electronic books. And she did a very good profile. So that's, if people are interested, they can, there'll be a link to that. And they can Brilliant. do that. So good. Well. Great. And you're, yeah. and you're still available, right? For, for, to come in and work with coach, work with leaders. Work oh yeah, absolutely. With change and, programs. And you, the, 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 I keep meaning to up, upgrade or up make, a little website more, more contemporary, but people can always write me at Andy at Actors Mind. I'll send that. I'll give you a link to that too. Fantastic. And um, uh, they can uh, contact uh, me by email or, yeah, I think email is probably the best. And um, uh, so, yeah, that's really it. Wow, it's been a it's a it's been a it's been a great ride. I've learned a huge amount in this conversation. I hope I oh, hope have too. Okay. And uh, yeah, and I do. I do coaching, uh, like, in through you know I, I've used Skype, but this is a little bit better than Skype. The uh, Zoom. Thing. <laughs> Zoom. So okay. I can I can do coaching because um, you're based in LA, right? So from, yeah, I'm based well outside of LA, but okay. but um, in the sunshine. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one thing we we do not lack. <laughs> it's uh, we came here for the sunshine and. Uh, this, you were disappointed. Uh, right. We weren't disappointed. Um, Mark Twain had a marvelous thing, which is heaven for climate, hell for society. Well, we're in heaven here. We've got climate. Um, I really enjoyed, I still have a lot of friends in the UK and certainly both in the theater and in, uh, in organizations. So I've been, uh, that's another side. Anyway. Okay. All, All right. right. Well, thank you so much uh, for giving up your time. It's been fantastic. And yeah. Great. Let's well, let me day. know when you, you hopefully you'll chop out all the stuff that's not useful. But anyway. Oh, no. Well, there's very little editing. So it'll. Oh, okay. Right. Well, I'm sure we'll make some clips at some point. Okay. But, yeah. Very so, good. I cheers. Yeah. Cheers to you, Jim. Thank you. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye bye. Brought to you by. First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.